0: Today's scripture reading is Matthew 6, 5 to 13. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they left to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And forgive us our debts, as we, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Well, last week we began by making an argument. Uh, discussion, we started uh, a, a statement that, Prayer is as, as essential to the Christian life as breathing is, as, as taking an air, or you might say, uh, w- or eating, eating food. It's essential to our life. And yet we began to talk about the fact that if it's that essential, why is it so hard for us? Why is it so difficult? Why is it so challenging to pray to God? We talked about the fact that we are all in this together. Prayer is hard for all of us. There's a few reasons we talked last week. Just a quick recap. We talked about it's hard. We struggle with it because it's great. It's a great thing. It's a great act. We're communing with God. And anything great, anything great, nothing it doesn't come easy, does it? It doesn't come easy. We struggle because we're sinful, we talked about. And last week, we looked at Jesus' two warnings. We take even our own sinfulness into the presence of God in prayer. And Jesus warned us last week of those two warnings. Which pointed to our own sinful temptations. He warned us to not pray self-righteously to impress people. Or on the other end was to impress God with empty words of repetition or lofty speech to impress God. That was his warnings to us. We took away last week as well that he wants us to pray with our hearts, with our minds, with everything we are engaged in an exclusive posture. Where we acknowledge and realize I am coming before a holy God right now, a holy loving God. Well, this week we move from the how to pray was kind of last week to the uh, the what to pray this week. Last week was in verses five through eight, the how, and this week we get into the actual prayer. Pray this way, then Jesus says in verses nine through ten, and Jesus is going to begin by naming the one we approach first naming the one we approach, and placing His, that's God's agenda and kingdom, at the top of our list of requests, right at the top. So this morning we're going to explore the name, and then those three requests as we approach this pattern prayer. This pattern prayer. You might even say it's Jesus' model for us. A prayer which really contains, actually, Everything you need for prayer is in these short little verses. Everything. The pattern that he gives us. So as we come to this prayer this morning, I want you to ask yourself a few questions. As we examine our own hearts, as we take the words of Jesus now and apply them to who we are, here's the first question. What are some of my bad prayer habits? Or or things that I'd like to see change about my prayer life? Here's another one. How does what I pray for maybe need correcting by Jesus today? It's a question I'm asking myself this week in this passage, and here's the last one maybe. How can my prayers be more God-honoring, God-glorifying? Because that's where Jesus is taking us today. Think of a moment of your, your greatest recipe. Uh, the thing you, you love to make, that dish you're known for. Uh, dessert, main dish, whatever it is, or something you just like to make for yourself. Imagine leaving out the salt, the sugar, the flour from that uh, recipe. It would be a disaster, wouldn't it? Or or, or any one of those main ingredients. What we have here today, I call it a pattern. You might even say a recipe for prayer from Jesus. We need every ingredient of this prayer to commune with God. Uh, Clearly. In a way that honors, in a way that changes us in a way that brings us before the actual God we're praying to in this recipe. We have an opportunity here. We get to be taught how to pray by Jesus. By Jesus, the one who had the greatest intimacy, the greatest prayer life ever, and is our God. Jesus teaches us to pray, and he's doing that today. We have an absolute immense privilege and opportunity today when he comes and says pray then like this we get to sit at his feet today and so we do that we're going to look at the name and then the first three requests so hopefully you got your outline there and your bible open to the lord's prayer we're going to work through the the first few verses of this prayer today but let's look first at the name our imminent father transcendent in heaven is the pause you and I need to begin prayer with. Our imminent Father, transcendent in heaven, It's the pause you and I need. As we said last week, one of the telling things about prayer is, I think the phrase goes, so we believe, so we pray. When we pray... Every thought, idea, word, request, everything we say flows from your heart's beliefs about who God is. Our theology becomes really practical what we believe about God when it comes to a time of prayer. So we believe, so we pray, what we believe about God and His gospel and Jesus. Here's how I tend to pray self centered. Driven by my needs, really just kind of focused on myself, my troubles, my problems, my requests, a lot of this, a lot of I, a lot of I, a lot of I, a lot of my, me, and mine, in my prayers. If I'm honest with myself before you guys, and I think about my prayer life, I'm so quick to jump right to my needs and requests. And Jesus doesn't leave those out, as we're going to see in this prayer next week. But I do that. And then I'm surprised when nothing happens. Or I'm distracted. Or I don't seem to feel like, did I even pray? Did I actually approach God right now? I'm surprised. Take a glance down at the prayer for a minute in, your, in the text there. Just a couple of things I want us to notice as we come to this prayer. As Jesus says, pray then like this. Notice the absence of the word, I. The first person, singular pronoun, I, is not in the prayer. It's not there. Our Father, our, our, us, our. And even when it gets to the request, give us our daily bread. Forgive us, lead us, deliver us. All plural pronouns. All of them. It's not my or give me. Now Jesus is not telling us that we cannot bring our personal request to God. That's not what he's saying. Or that we can't ever use I in prayer. He's not saying that, but he's reminding us that first, when you and I are brought into the family of God, when we are saved, we're saved into a family. It is us. It is our. It is we. It is the family of God. I think that's what Jesus is reminding us first and foremost. And reminding us to think about more as we come to prayer, than just ourselves. I was asking myself the question, or maybe you asked yourself the question this week, when was the last time you prayed, God, help Bethany Church, or our local congregation, or the churches of Canby, uh, in 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 a plural sense, in your prayer life, or help us to be, or give us our. Jesus is showing us that healthy prayer at the very least, at the, at the outset, removes ourself in some way, at, at least initially, Jesus says, as he begins, our Father, all of us in this room. You know Jesus knows our temptation. He knows my temptation. He knows my heart better than anybody else. He knew his disciples there when he's teaching them to pray. We're only human, right? You're thinking, I'm only human. You're right, you're only human, <laughs> We're constantly troubled, aren't we? With anxieties, with worries, with heartache—not only for ourselves but for those we love, aren't we? That's just that's part of living in this fallen world. We we just start praying. We we just can't help ourselves. Jesus, help me here and and answer here. And please, Jesus, give me this and please this and that. We we just can't help ourselves. We're human. But if we could just stop for a moment and, and hit that pause button. Or, or put better yet, put our hand over our mouth like Job did. Remember at the beginning? He's all words, isn't he? He's all words for chapters and chapters. And finally, God speaks. And what does he do? He just goes, I just got to stop and just be in your presence, God. You've spoken. Prayer begins by hitting that pause button with these two words. Our Father it's a recollection you might say it's recalling something it's reminding ourselves the outset of prayer what our relationship is to him it really means that prayer jesus is showing us begins with an act of worship begins with a, a praise or a, a, an adoration or invoking god's name our father it's just start with that and when you start here do you know what happens it's not just a formula Jesus is concerned, remember the Sermon on the Mount with our hearts all the way through. When you start there with our Father, it puts a lot of those expectations, those worries, those anxieties in their proper place. Because you recall again, oh yes, I'm coming to the Father. I'm coming to my personal Father. Kind of like when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're on a road trip and you're out there. And it's a place you've never been, you're pretty far out there, you need GPS, you've got it going on your phone or whatever, and what happens? It cuts out. It's gone. It totally cuts out. What kind of happens? A little bit of panic, especially if you got kids, When we were talking about last week, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? You start to panic a little bit. The GPS cuts out. You get a little anxious. Where am I going? Where, where is our destination? Who, who, I don't carry a map anymore. Who's got a Thomas guide in their car still? Maybe you do. Good. I'm so glad. (laughs) I want to travel with that man. (laughs) But you get it. I mean, you get it. A lot of us don't. When the GPS goes out, and then it pops back up. What happens? (sighs) Okay. You kind of breathe a sigh of relief. Okay, I've got my bearings. Our Father works this way. When you say our Father. It's a pausing recollection that lets us get our bearings. Who am I? What am I in this world? Who is our God? Where are we going? What's our destination? What do I really need? What does he want for me? In those two little words, it gives us our bearings at the beginning of prayer. If we could just start there, I think so much of our prayer life would kind of fall into the pattern Jesus is saying here. Let's look at a few words quickly to unpack this before we go to the request, this idea of Father, because it's a big idea. We could spend weeks talking about the Father God uh, throughout Scripture, but let's, let's do a few words today at least to help us. This first word I want us to see is adopted. Now, what does it mean to call God our Father? Adopted. It implies this first, this word adopted and Father. If you're able to sincerely pray to God as your Father and say it and mean it and know it, then you've been Adopted. You have been adopted by God. The temptation in the world to see God as Father, maybe generically, uh, or as if all—excuse <clears throat> me—religions and roads just lead to this um, gray-haired guy in the sky—and think of a fatherly term of go- uh, God like like that, kind of generic. But as the Bible makes really clear, it's only through being adopted by him in Jesus Christ that you become a true child of God and able to say our Father with a real meaningful sense. That's it. To be adopted by him. Outside of Jesus, the Bible is very clear. You cannot call God Father in any true, meaningful, personal, or saving way. It's adoption through Jesus Christ. Here's a couple of verses that God is our Father, 2 Corinthians 6.18. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. This isn't some title for God. I think you can hear it even in the voice there. This isn't just some title, but a real family, daughter, son, filial. It's that word family, daughter-son relationship. It's not just a title. not just a word. There's a real meaning in this word father. When we say our father, this is the God we pray to. Romans gives us a similar understanding of God with this adoption. It says this, For all who are led by the Spirit of God... Our sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of, there it is, adoption. As sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, that's a very personal cry. Not just a title, but a real heavenly Father. Only those, Paul says in Romans, that have been born again by the spirit of adoption, been given the spirit and drawn in by Him, can call God Father in a real meaningful sense. But it also means this. If he's Father, and this is not just a title, he's personal. It's our second word. He's personal. To approach our Father in prayer means we can do so freely. Freely without fear, as children to a Father who knows them intimately, personally. Remember from last week, verse 8 said, your Father knows what you need before you even ask Him. A Father who knows every need you have before you even come to Him. And we personally come through Him. We come as persons, as individuals, as people through Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1.5 says this, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. He's called us, predestined us, drawn us in to Himself, adopted us through Jesus Christ. There's the exclusivity of it. Not in just some general sense, but if you've trusted Jesus, if you know Jesus, you've come through Him and He's opened up the way for you to say in the most meaningful way possible, our Father, my Father. And Jesus even prays for God's children, God's children in a special way. Did you know that? Jesus prays and in Romans that says the Spirit does too. But Jesus here in his, it's called a lot of people call it his high priestly prayer, says, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours. Talk about personal. Talk about intimate. Talk about a God who loves you. And Jesus in that moment just says, I'm going to pray for the church. I'm going to pray for God's people because they are yours. And I'm going to purchase them. He knows in just a few short hours in that prayer. The Bible draws this very, very sharp distinction between those who belong to God through adoption in Jesus, and those who don't, He is only our Father through adoption, which means that He's personal. Which means that He loves you. Is our third word. You are loved by this Father. He gave His Son. We know the verse, John three sixteen. God so loved he that He gave. He loved the world so He gave His Son. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. It is driven by love and grace and mercy for you. However, I know, I know today even, that saying our Father might be hard for some of you. To hear the word Father for some of us, some of you today maybe, conjures up images of abuse. That word, Father. Maybe alcoholic anger. Neglect. Maybe hunger. Maybe poverty. Someone who is foolish with money. Abandonment. There's all kinds of words that many of us probably have that we associate with Father that are different than love. I was reading the testimony this week. Of a pastor and biblical counselor on a Gospel Coalition website named Jim Pacta. I'm not sure how to say his last name, but I think that's right. And in this testimony, he shared this heart-wrenching story of growing up with same-sex attraction. Not only that, but growing up with a father who was violent and alcoholic, and for years... He lived this double life and kept his same-sex attraction quiet from his family and his wife and his church, and he just tried to ignore it and push it and pray it away. He got married. His testimony goes on to say and had kids and became a pastor and lived this secret life until his life just absolutely crumbled and imploded. The night Jim was ready, in this testimony goes on, the night he was ready to commit suicide and was preparing, his wife came home from a a conference on grief, on grieving, on grieving, with a list, as maybe they're asked to do it for family members, she had a list of of 40 things that had happened to her husband that she thought he had never grieved in his life. She gave him this list. He said, "Why, why would I want to relive all that Pain with my father. For him, it was a, 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 an issue with his father. And, and my upbringing and all my struggles with same sex attraction. Why do I want to relive that until you remember Jesus' words that come from this same sermon? Blessed are those who mourn. And he couldn't get that verse out of his head. Blessed are those who mourn, who grieve. And he began to do that. Here's what he said in this testimony. So I began grieving that day for real. And I continue to this day, he said, I thought as Christians we're supposed to forget what lies behind, but this was different. I recalled all the abuse, the put-downs, the bullying, the humiliation, along with all my faults and failings, and that's when I realized Jesus could have stopped it all. But he didn't. He must have something better in mind. Maybe for you, there are father wounds in your past, that you need to actually grieve and grieve and open up with your heavenly Father, the true Father, for the first time. And Maybe that's something that's this roadblock between your intimacy with your true heavenly Father to see Him redeem your past, your hurt, and open up in intimacy with prayer. To admit that, yes, it was wrong that I experienced this. So that God can begin to heal can heal you as your true father in heaven, because he can. He can. It's our fourth word, it means he's powerful. If he can take a broken past and redeem it, like this man Jim, like your past, like many of us, things we've been through, it's our fourth word powerful. Our father, what are the next two words? in heaven, right? In heaven. Our Father who is in heaven, or who art in heaven, sorry, who art would be the the next two words, who art in heaven. It's the transcendent part. We said he's imminent, he's close, he's personal, but it also means he's transcendent. What that means is he's the all-loving but all-powerful who can actually redeem the hurts of your life when we pray them to him. If he wasn't all-powerful, he could do nothing with your broken past. But he is, as those words in heaven mean. He can actually answer your requests. He's the all-powerful Father in heaven who we approach. Who even if you think about it, even the, the best earthly father is just a shadow of what our heavenly Father is. Jim went on to say that through this process. It was almost like he heard Jesus, heard God speaking almost back to him in this prayer. Here's what he said. This is the words of God kind of coming to him or how he thought now of the Heavenly Father. I know this brute of a daddy and other bullies and abusers are hurting you deeply, but oh, just you wait. Wait and see how I use this. Not only to embrace you, but to give your life such value, such meaning. You're going to have something good, so good to share. A way to love others, a way to preach me. It'll be worth it. You feel like a victim now, but I'm going to make you so much better than if all of this had never happened to you in the first place. You're actually going to end up more than a conqueror. Using the words from Romans. When we pray, we have to hold these two truths together. Father in heaven. Because it puts us in that right frame of mind. It eases anxiety and worry when we're reminded We've got a personal, loving, powerful God who knows exactly what you need, who cares about you, who wants to hear your voice, and has the power to redeem even a broken life like Jim, like he shared, or me, or you. But as we do this, it also reorients the content of our prayer. We're going to go through these three requests a bit quicker, but let's look at them. He reorients the content of our prayer to be first and foremost about his name, his will, and his kingdom. Let's look at the first request. Hallowed be your name is a prayer that the world would know God as he truly is. Hallowed be your name. This is the type of prayer that the world would know God as he truly is. I think it was uh, Juliet who said to Romeo, what's in a name? Wasn't that her? What's in a name? What does it mean? What's in a name? For them, it was a lot. (laughs) Their last name kept them apart. They couldn't even cross paths because of their names and what those names meant. We know names matter. We know names matter. How many you like it when your name is mispronounced or garbled? Who loves that? You get introduced and somebody says, you know, just totally mangles your name. How many Christians like to be called Kirsten? How many uh, Stevens like to be called Stefan? if you've got the PH? Nobody. I kid you not, um, at our wedding reception, we, uh, there's that moment you come out and they introduce the couple to all the people at the re- reception. It's just a, a great moment. We came out and, and our DJ is introducing us and he says, ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure to introduce to you Mr. and Mrs. Robin Gibbons. Gibbons? Seriously? We paid for this? (laughs) That was our thought. Gibbons. It was not a great moment. It was embarrassing, and everybody we know is like, Gibbons, you know. (laughs) Our names matter, don't they? They matter. Just ask Benedict Arnold, right? Jezebel, Judas, Sirhan Sirhan, John Wilkes Booth. Do our names matter? They matter. They mean something. They stand for the person who holds the name and their lifetime of actions, your history, your attitudes, your characteristics when someone says your name. And God revealed himself as Jehovah or Yahweh, as we know. And the Jews, one thing they did really well was they they understood so much that God was holy and, and other and transcendent that they even just sometimes just said the name. They used the name as a way to talk about God because they understood just to say his name even. Yahweh, Jehovah was to utter holy words about a holy God. And so the name became kind of a, a shorthand, a concentrated way to communicate all that God is. Just to say the name, hallowed be the name. It's kind of what Jesus is saying. It's a shorthand all to communicate all that he is all that he's ever done all of his character all his existence wrapped into the name the name now none of us just want to be known for our name do we because we have a past don't we we have things we've done mistakes we've made sometimes when our name comes in front of some people and our name is mentioned they go oh him <laughs> yeah, right ah oh, her that's reality They don't react so great. But not God. He is perfect. And so his name should, it carries with it his perfect character. And because of that, that's why God's always been so concerned for his name. We think about it, well, that's so selfish. Why is always God who's talking about his name? Because he knows that in that name is carried who he is. It's one of the motivating factors, God said, uh, why he saved his people from slavery in Egypt. Look at Ezekiel. It's one of the motivating factors for him. I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned, made less than, talked bad about, in the sight of the nations, in whose sight I brought them out, saved the Egyptians, brought them out of slavery, because of his name. I want you to think for a minute. There is amazing comfort in that. We think, why is God so concerned with his name? Is he that prideful or selfish or so just self centered? There is absolutely great comfort in that. Not only is he the greatest name, he's got to put forth his fame. But once God promises and makes a covenant with a people, new covenant with a people, he attaches his name to us. He attaches his name to you. And everything that's contained in that name and all the promises in that name and all the goodness in that name becomes eternally attached to you. So what happens to you speaks of his name. You get it, Ezekiel? For the sake of my name? And so if you've become united to Christ and taken his name in salvation, Christian, don't you think he cares about your prayers? You've taken his name. His reputation is tied to you forever. That means as bad as things can get, as terrible as things seem right now, he will redeem it so that someday you'll go, it was all worth it. Thank you, Father. He's tying his name to you. The covenant's attaching you. But how flippantly our world uses God's name, don't they? He used to turn on you know, anything above a PG movie or, just, you know, you just, or walk down the street. How flippantly the name is thrown around. But once we realize we're in the presence of God in prayer, our Father in heaven, our hearts should go to a a desire for that name to be hallowed. What is that? It's it's like a weird, archaic word, isn't it? The only place we use it is Halloween. It's the only place we pretty much use it anymore. Hollowed, it's weird. It it, it means to to set apart, to, to make holy, to consider as holy that name. But we know, you and I, we can't add to God's holiness. You can't add to God's glory. He's perfect in and of himself. So when Jesus is saying that, Jesus is asking this. Here's a quote from Al Mohler on his book on the Lord's Prayer. Jesus is asking God to so move and act in the world that people value his glory, esteem his holiness, and treasure his character above all else. He goes on to say, we must not miss this. Jesus' first request is not his personal needs be met, but that God's glory and holiness be known and loved as it deserves. What a remarkably God-centered prayer, he says. This is Jesus now praying this. Our lives, then, what that means, the name be hallowed. We've talked about this before, I think. Our lives are like little mirrors, a mirror that can reflect. Have I held a mirror up here? you get as blinded as I am every week by these lights. We'd go like that and you'd go, you'd see the lights. They'd reflect off of the mirror. Our lives are like that. We reflect who God is as we've taken the name Christian in our work, in our family, in our friendships, in our prayer, in our preaching, in our evangelism, in our hobbies, in our money, in our sex, all of those things. All of it we can reflect his goodness in as we live for him. But the flip side then, if you've taken on the name and you're out there reflecting disobedience or going against his commands or speaking of his name poorly, we can do the opposite. We represent the name. You carry the name in every sphere you go into. Every door you walk through, you carry that name. Just beautiful and wonderful and promising and encouraging, but also, it's a little sobering, isn't it? Everywhere I go, you can be a mirror. So we're instructed to pray more and more that the world, the world, would value this name. Think about how, how, how big that thought of prayer is, how big that vision is Jesus has for prayer in the world. We can get so claustrophobic and shrink down into our little prayer life when Jesus is saying, may the name of God go through the world. It's kind of radical, isn't it? It challenges me in my prayer life. I hope it does you too. Hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come is our second one. Your kingdom come. What are we asking? Well, here's a way we're going to unpack this a little bit. But your kingdom come is a prayer for the already, the already on one hand inaugurated kingdom to become the full-bloomed, the fully-blossomed, the fully-consummated kingdom. It's our second request today. And notice Jesus' mind is still on the Father and His will and world and kingdom. It's one of the most debated terms in the Bible, the kingdom. What does it mean to pray for God's kingdom? And what is it? I like uh, Graham Goldsworthy. He's got a little short little way to remember. What is it? He describes the kingdom as this. God's people in God's place, under God's rule and blessing. It's it's why sometimes I've used the term that we're a kingdom outpost at Bethany Church. We're a gospel outpost. It's a place where God's people are here and we gather and we're living under God's rule and blessing together. Well, logically, if it follows that if his name is to be hallowed, then we would want the king of that kingdom We'd want Jesus to be that king and for that kingdom to come. But the kingdom of God, as I said, it's been talked about as the already inaugurated kingdom, but not quite fully realized or here yet. And we know Jesus came saying this. Here's his words from Mark. We went through the gospel of Mark this last year. He said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So repent and believe in the gospel. He said that. And those who've trusted Jesus, as Jesus has said, through repentance and faith, they, they've entered. You've, you've entered. You're part of that kingdom. Those who've believed that Jesus is king and what he's done is necessary for them, for the kingdom, the gospel that Jesus is king and savior, or as Colossians says, you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of what? You know? Light. Yeah, light. And yet we know, as you look around the world, not everyone bows and acknowledges him as king, do they? Not everyone does. 1 Corinthians 4.4 4, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. The world is blinded by sin. By the lowercase g, God of this world. Blinded by sin, the ruler of this world. But the kingdom is broken in. It's inaugurated. It's started in men and women who repent and believe in Jesus this kingdom work is breaking out it's inaugurated and yet we pray for it Jesus says kingdom come we await it we wait for it to be consummated when Christ returns to judge the world and usher in eternity one of the guys that helped us in church history with some word to understand this the best was uh, Augustine he described it as two cities Two cities, he described them. On the one, he said, we've got the city of man, the city of people, the city of humanity. And the other one, he said, is the city of uh, of God, the city of God that will last forever. City of man will pass away, will disappear. But he said the city of God, this kingdom is going to last forever. So to pray your kingdom come means praying for power, and influence of the gospel to expand in our own hearts, but the hearts of the lost and the world and its cultures and its systems and its structures and its powers. It's like this all-inclusive missionary prayer that the gospel would advance. It's Jesus saying that politics won't save you. Cultural influence cannot save It's not programs that will save. Although these are part of restoring and bringing in God's justice and goodness and love, all of those things, culture and politics, or can be at least at their best, the kingdom comes primarily through proclamation, heralding the king, letting people know you love Jesus, praying for the world and for Jesus to come and being part of that in whatever that looks like in your life or church kingdom come, thy kingdom come, the crucified now living king. And so we pray it, but are called to share it and proclaim it too. Second Peter says, looking for that great day, longing for Jesus to return, when sin and evil will be gone. Jesus says in Revelation, I'm coming soon. We pray for him to come. That's what it means to pray, your kingdom come. The gospel would spread and transform the here and now, but bring in the forever too. Here's our final one today. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Your will be done is a prayer not to bend God's will to ours, but for God to reshape our will to his. The prayer for God's will to be done is for God's, uh, his revealed will. We look at that and go, which will? Like, what does that mean? Does does that mean what God wants to have happen? Can't happen? Unless we pray it, it won't happen? I think what we see here is God's revealed will. The other, theologians have talked about his will in two different ways. His divine decreed will, what he sovereignly ordains, what he wants to happen, cannot be thwarted. It's going to happen. The psalmist says our God is in heaven. He does as he pleases. What we're talking about here is his revealed will to us what he wants for you and I in our lives. Logically follows, if God is Father, we want his name to be hallowed, we want his kingdom to reign, we'd want then his people to live like those godly citizens of that kingdom and reflect it, mirrors, in their life, wherever you are, wherever you go. To pray for God's will to be done is to pray for holiness, for goodness. Uh, However you describe it, the Ten Commandments, the fruit of the Spirit, to increase in the world. But it's to pray something kind of dangerous, actually, kind of dangerous, because you and I both know the way God brings that about many times is through trials, is through what is he transforms us, asks us to trust him. Elizabeth Elliot said, to pray thy will be done, I must be willing, if the answer requires it, that my will be undone. Because in so praying, we're not just praying that your behavior, my behavior, be modified. The Sermon on the Mount, if anything, shows us that Jesus is going for your heart at a deeper level than even what we see. But that's where most of our minds live, in the symptoms, in what you can see, in what's on the surface, in what's on top. If we could just fix that person, right, or that thing about them. Or that town or political party. We get so concerned with the symptoms. If we can just get those symptoms fixed, if we can just get the right law in place, or we can just get the right party back in power. When our greatest desire, Jesus is saying, should be that men and women honor him as God. Because that's where real transformation comes from. All powerful kingdom come. So here's a question that we close with. What troubles our mind? Is it just the issues, the problems, the manifestation of sin that we see in the world? Or is it the fact that the people of the world do not worship and glorify God from their heart? What consumes your mind? Let's pray that our one overarching desire would not be, let's just fix all the rules or the symptoms, but that it would be a burning heart desire for the world to know God as Father through the Son. If this table shows us anything, it shows us that little fixes and band-aids and maybe changing a rule or a law, we need so much more than that, don't we? We need so much more than that. We need Jesus. We need Jesus. His saving work. You think about our prayer life. None of us will ever pray perfectly. And yet Jesus died for that too. He died for that. We need a, we need a, it's, it's a revolution. This is the revolution in the world. This is what we need, the saving work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Because this is the way you come to say with real true meaning, our Father, through his work for you. So today as we Past these elements in a moment. I want to ask those of you if today you're not sure, and you just aren't sure if you can say, "Our Father," with truly saying, "Yeah, I've, I've trusted Jesus. I know God is my Father." What I want you to do is spend the time when the elements are coming around, let them pass. Spend time between, with prayer and God. This, Jesus said, "This is a meal for His family," and it, it doesn't quite make sense if you can't say with true assurance, "I'm part of that family." To take it, there's no one going to be judging you. You'll be going to be looking down the aisles to see who takes it and who doesn't. Spend that time with God. But for, for the rest of us, let's take just a couple moments and pause with the words, Our Father. Can we do that as our servers come forward to prepare? Just sit on in Our Father. Servers, you can come and get ready.